a doctor in the house. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, we are ready. Um, Emmett, you are, you have not responded to an email that I think Cindy sent out last week, which was specially prepared for you. There were a number of other people that did, but you did not respond. So I don't know that you got the email from Cindy. So just check that because that schedule was made available for you. Um, I think that was, there was only like four or five spots and I think they may already be taken. Um, so anyway, just check that, check your email and hopefully you've, uh, you've got that there. And um, there is one person. Let's see, Rachel Robinson, if you're on here, we will be answering your question today on the IADFW later on today, all right? Okay, so for the question that we, we're going to talk about now, I've got, I've got a couple of things that, um, there, there's a couple of things that I really want to talk about. Unfortunately, I am not in a, um, uh, I think that right now to talk about it may be somewhat premature because there's a lot of people that are going to be interested in it. And then uh, unfortunately, the way things work out, life gets in the way and I can't get to it when I say it's going to happen and or due to other clinical obligations and such, the things get delayed. So I'm not going to announce it yet, but there is going to be a webinar coming up very, very soon that I think is going to be critical for pretty much anybody with any type of chronic disease. But I think that this is it really comes down to one thing that's the most important. What's really interesting about this one thing, and I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but what's really interesting is that not only is it the most important and the most significant supplement, I believe, that is on the planet, it actually happens to be the first line of drug that certain people believe is the first, first uh, line of drug therapy for certain types of acute heart conditions, okay? So I'll just leave it at that. Some of you may already know what I'm talking about. And um, it is a very, very critical component. And I think it's a chronic lack of this that probably helps to contribute to many of the pathologies that we see today. And um, the good news is that if you're a member of the IADFW and you bought the map to get ahead program if you follow those two simple changes to implement in your life that'll change your life the two simple changes to implement into your life if you take those there are five things on that video although it's just two simple things there's actually a total of five but two of them are three of them are so simple you know it's like effortless but two of them it does take a little bit of effort but they're simple so if you're already doing that you're already covering this portion because you're actually two of those five steps are actually naturally increasing this substance in your body now the reason i'm not going to talk about it is because obviously i'm going to build up a little bit of excitement about it and some of you may know what i'm talking about 
Most of you probably don't. And what, what we don't know about this um, essential element that is considered, in my opinion, to be the, the most important supplement on the planet, that there are certain components of this that in modern medicine have been completely, completely ignored. But the work of multiple Nobel laureates that go back almost 100 years um, supports not only the, the theories that I have, but actually validate this uh, on, on, a, on a medical level, on a scientific level that far supersedes any justification for any of the other drug modalities that are being utilized for many of the chronic diseases. I won't go into specifics. And when I do the IADFW component later on today, I'll mention maybe a little bit more about this. But regardless, it is validated. It has been scientifically and clinically uh, shown to be more than um, valid. And I think that we probably need to make conscious efforts to increase the component, these components in our body, uh, this specific component, but there's certain other components that we can take that will enhance the effects of this single most important thing. So we'll talk more about it. Um, again, if you are, um, if you have the, if you're in possession of the two simple changes to implement in your life, if those two simple changes video, if you have it, watch it again and make sure that you're doing every one of those five steps because two of those steps, as I said, naturally are increasing this and actually in some way, fashion or form, the other three indirectly, maybe on a secondary or tertiary level are probably increasing uh, this component within your body anyway. So at that point, I will stop and we will go into the question that I'm going to answer. And that question was posed by um, Denny, I'm sorry, last name is Denny, it's K. Carolyn Denny, and I'll just call you K. And K said, my husband was diagnosed last month with multiple myeloma. Oncologists want to start him on chemo, stem cells, and pills. The cancer goes into remission but comes back and then the treatments start all over again, I think. We are unsure whether to do this treatment and once in remission start getting his immune immune system healed to kill the cancer cells. The doctors give him one to two years without the chemo, etc. I have a neuro problem myself and a lung issue I've been putting on the back burner due to the doctor saying I would need three antibiotics daily for a whole year. And then she says, mycobacterium avium complex. I really have no symptoms to speak of with the MAC. This was found on a CT scan during a heart attack two years ago. Sorry to write so much initially. I just need to help my husband of 41 years first. Okay, so uh, again, because we're on a live broadcast that is not uh, since this isn't the IADFW broadcast, I can't answer specific questions, but I can talk about some general components. I thought this was a good question to answer because I just picked this one arbitrarily. There were probably close to 30 questions like this that have been submitted in the last maybe 30 days, you know, 30, maybe 40 questions like this. Very similar, 
not necessarily uh, about this type of particular cancer, not that they had multiple myeloma or anything, but this type of uh, general question. So I thought we would talk a little bit in generalities about cancer. And this is my opinion about cancer. And I think it comes down to many of the nuances that we approach various disease processes with, depending on the doctor, we each, each of us, each doctor that you go to has their own um, nuances, right? They have their own belief systems. Most people fall into one of two categories. So there's the conventional uh, intervention component, which is primarily chemo and radiation um, with the uh, use of the surgery if necessary. And then you've got the non-conventional, which is maybe using other adjuvants to facilitate, but they may believe in low-dose insulin-potentiated chemotherapy um, or you know, other various uh, natural forms combined with some type of conventional treatment, which is commonly referred to as integrated therapy. Um, I don't like the word alternative. I never have because what we do is not alternative to me. It's the primary, secondary, and tertiary options. And if none of those work, then maybe look at some of the other ones, but that's just my opinion, right? So just remember that this is a public broadcast. So pretty much what I'm going to say um, is my opinion. I don't expect you to take what I'm going to say and accept it, but um, it's just my opinion. So there's no medical advice being given on this broadcast, all right? So I'm going to ask a couple of general questions, and maybe you guys can answer these general questions for me, and let's see. I'm pretty sure that most of you are already going to end up um, understanding what I'm going to say. And most of you may even know which direction I'm going to go in this, but I would like for you guys to participate and, and give me the answers that you think would be the right answers to the questions that I'm going to ask, all right? So when an individual has cancer, my first question is, how long prior to that cancer becoming evident, did the cancer start? How long prior to the actual diagnosis of cancer was it that the cancer actually began? When did the process begin, all right? That's my first question. So anybody have an opinion on that or, or an answer for that, share it with me, please. And of course, on Instagram too, if you have an answer to that, if you have a thought process or you think you know the answer to that, give me your answers, all right? Okay, so a healing place, 314 says, up to 10 years prior, all right? Kim said years. Barbara says several years. Tiffany said seven years. Uh, Louise said cancer started years earlier. Okay, so you guys all have the same idea. I like, I like Tiffany, that you've got a very specific seven years. Exactly, I like that. Okay, so really the, the answer is that Andrea said five to 10 years before. So there's a number of different people that are, that have the same type, you know, you have the similar type of thought processes right now. So the answer is it all depends on the type of cancer, but certain cancers, more than other cancers, actually started way, way before. All cancers started years before. So if you're looking at something like, say, lung cancer, it probably started anywhere from five to seven years prior to the actual diagnosis. If you're looking at something like prostate cancer, it could be 15 to 20 years before. Colon cancer is easily 10 years before. Breast cancer is 5 to 10 years before. So it all depends on the type of cancer. But each of these organ systems that we just discussed and all the other ones that we haven't discussed that actually end up being 
susceptible to the cancer. The cancer was not something that popped up the day before, the week before, the month before, okay? It started years before, years before. So that's the first question. Second question, what was the cancer, what was the cell that's cancerous, what was the cancer cell before it became a cancer cell? In other words, a cancer cell before the onset of cancer, what was that cell? Okay, so more people gave me answers about how long before the cancer started, so that's excellent. Um, so the question, the second question was how long before, or I'm sorry, the, the second question was when a cancer cell is formed prior to its formation, prior to becoming cancerous, what was that cell? And that might seem like a pretty uh, obvious question or, uh, you know, a uh, uh, rhetorical type question, but Andrea said a normal cell. And RAS NGO on Instagram said normal cell as well. Now, a healing place 314 interestingly said abnormal question mark. Now, um, a healthy cell. Yes, exactly. A healthy cell. It was a normal cell. It was a healthy cell. Barbara said the same thing. Healthy cell, normal cell. Now, Kim asked a damaged cell question mark. And that's what somebody else over here said also. A question. The question was, was it an abnormal cell? Now, you know, Richard said an abhorrent cell. Actually, no, Richard, it wasn't. Um, Emmett said an abnormal cell. Actually, it wasn't. It was actually a normal cell. Now, from the time that it goes from a normal cell to a cancer cell, yes, it becomes an um, abhorrent, abnormal, um, something has been thrown off, and then it becomes a cancer cell. So there is an evolutionary process that the cell goes through, but it's a cell that's normal, healthy, then something happens to it that it becomes an abnormal cell, and then from that point, it, certain components start to take place, and those abnormal cells then become uh, cancerous cells, and that's when they get, end up getting diagnosed after a number of years when a sufficient number of those abnormal cells have accumulated and formed a mass that's now either palpable or you know, it's causing some kind of, kind of problem or it's painful or it's picked up on a CAT scan or whatever the case may be. So it was normal cell, and then it becomes a cancer cell. In the process of becoming a cancer cell, it goes from a state of normalcy to a state of abnormally, uh, abnormally functioning metabolism or an abnormal cell. And then from there, it goes to becoming a cancer cell. So the last thing that we're going to talk about, the last question I'm going to ask you is a cancer cell that, say, is a cell that is, a, say, glioblastoma cell, which is a brain, type, brain cancer, or pancreatic cancer cell, or a hepatocellular cancer cell, a liver cancer cell, or cancer in the breast, breast cancer cell, or a prostate cancer cell, what are the main characteristics that make it different? Besides the fact that it's one in the prostate, one's in the breast, one's in the brain, besides that, what is the difference in these different cancer cells? Okay, that's the next question. Okay, so very, very interesting answers. So what is the difference besides the tissue in which a cancer cell develops that makes a prostate cancer cell different from a breast cancer cell, different from a brain cancer cell, different from a pancreatic cancer cell, different from a hepatocellular carcinoma cell, a liver cancer cell versus pancreatic cell, whatever the case may be. And so... Um, Angie says autoimmune disease. So it is an immune dysfunction, but my question was what makes it different, right? 
So we'll come back to the autoimmune disease component here in a second, because that's an interesting, uh, I think that deserves a response. It's an interesting comment, and you might be actually more on track than you realize. Um, Debbie said blood supply. That's, the, that's the, the difference, that there's a difference in blood supply. So that's interesting. Um, Kim said it does not die. Uh, apopto apoptosis does not occur, according to Andrea. They're anaerobic. They're weaker. They lack oxygen. Rate of duplication. Tiffany said nothing. All right. So let's see over here what people are saying. Grow faster than normal. Okay. I saw your TTSE in Grapevine, Texas. They became invisible for the body to detect and destroy. Uh, well, yes, that is very true. That is true. Multiplies quicker, uptakes glucose. Okay, so your your answers. This kind of is funny because when you're taking a high school exam or a college exam, you know they will ask a question in a certain manner, and people will put down the answer. And even though they understand what the answer is, they didn't listen to what the question was. I said, "What does what makes a cancer cell that's pancreatic cancer versus a liver cancer versus a brain cancer versus a breast cancer versus a prostate cancer? What makes it different?" Is my question. So that was kind of like a trick question, right? I didn't say what are the similarities, what are the what what's the difference is my question, and a lot of you guys have answered upstakes, um, glucose, um, you know, multiplies quicker, and these are all components that make a cancer cell cancerous. But a person by the name of Acop said, yes, nothing is different, and um, I saw somebody here. I think it was Tiffany. Tiffany said nothing, and that is the actual correct answer. The difference between a cancer cell that's in the pancreas versus a versus a, a liver cancer versus a breast cancer versus brain cancer or any type of cancer, there is nothing. And remember, I said besides being in the tissue that it's occurring in, whether it's occurring in the pancreas or occurring in the brain, besides that, there is nothing difference in those cancer cells. They are the same. Now, somebody would say, "How can you say that? They're not the same. They're a different cell. Of course, a different cell. That's why I said they come from a different tissue." But the common characteristics are the same. And many of you listed those common characteristics, which are the same for all cancers. So uptakes glucose, perfect. Cancer is an up glucose metabolizer. It's an obligate glucose metabolizer, which means that it has to run on sugar, okay? Um, that came from um, a healing place, right? Tracy Revy said it multiplies quicker. So that's uncontrolled cellular proliferation. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's another common characteristic. They are reproducing much, much faster. All right. Um, somebody else may have said that. It does not die. Kim said it does not die. That's the same thing. It's an uncontrolled cellular proliferation. It's constantly growing. That's exactly right. Um, Kim also said it's an anaerobic metabolizer. That's ex exactly right. All cancer cells are obligate anaerobic metabolizers. They're obligate glucose metabolizers, meaning that they need glucose to metabolize. They are, an all, they are also an obligate anaerobic metabolizer, meaning that they need an oxygen-free environment for, in order for them to, to continue to perpetuate, right? Let's look at some of the other. They lack oxygen, Barbara said. That's exactly the same thing. It's an obligate anaerobic metabolizer. Uh, Richard said rate of duplication, again, uncontrolled cellular proliferation. Uh, they grow in a low pH. Okay, so cancer is more prone to be prevalent in a uh, 
higher acidic environment. So the lower the pH, the more acidic it is. So yes, that's true. Um, that's typically true. Let's see, uh, Luis said that they're weaker. Okay, so cancer cells are actually, um, I wouldn't say that they're weaker, they're actually more resilient because they've gone into a state of uncontrolled cellular proliferation. But there's a, there's a couple of things about this concept of weaker, and we'll talk about that just in a second. Now, Andrea said apoptosis does not occur. And this kind of goes back to uh, Angie's comment about the autoimmune disease. So let me just make sure. Um, are some organs more susceptible to cancer than others? Absolutely. Something to do with lack of anti-tumor necrosis factors. Very, very interesting comment, Tracy, about this anti-tumor necrosis factor, but that's actually more misinformation um, that's been perpetuated. Okay, so really what it comes down to, and here, here are the common characteristics. This comes back to what um, Andrea said, apoptosis. What is apoptosis? Apoptosis is programmed cell death. It is the normal, inherently functional state of a cancer, or of, a, of a healthy cell to self-destruct in the case it becomes abnormal, i.e. cancerous or something else. What is the purpose behind apoptosis program cell death that doesn't make any sense? Okay, this is what it is. Here's a cell, it's normally functioning, but there's a mechanism in place that if something becomes aberrant, something becomes abnormal, something goes awry, there's something that, that makes the cell start to function abnormally. In order to protect the whole, the cell itself will sacrifice itself, will, will self-destruct in order to prevent an impact that's negative to the surrounding um, cells, to, to, to the whole, to the, to the whole organism. So the self self-destructs, kills itself in order to preserve the rest. That's called apoptosis. That is programmed cell death. In cancer, it's suppressed. So there's a suppression of apoptosis. That programmed cell death doesn't occur like it's supposed to. So we are all the time going through a process of apoptosis, that is apoptotic mechanisms in the body constantly, all right? But when that apoptosis becomes suppressed, goes down, that means that programmed suicide, that programmed cell destruction is no longer occurring like it normally should. It's slowed down, it's suppressed, it's not functioning. So the cells will not self-destruct as they normally would in case something abnormal happens. So now here's a cell, it becomes abnormal, it starts to rapidly grow, and then the suppression of apoptosis prevents it from becoming uh, self, from destroying itself, becoming you know, self-destruction. So that allows that aberrant cell that's now become abnormal to continue to perpetuate faster and faster and faster. And that's where, those are the common characteristics of cancer, what I call the common characteristics of cancer. And so there's many of them, but let's talk about just a couple of those in a, in a general fashion. You have suppression of apoptosis, that means a reduction in the program cell death. You have an obligate glucose metabolization state, which means that they need sugar to survive, they have to have sugar. They're an obligate anaerobic metabolizer, which means they're obligated to grow in an oxygen-free environment. If you put oxygen inside an uh, environment where there's cancer, the cancer can't survive, it hates, it hates oxygen. So that's the third one. And then there's a couple of other components that I, I actually, um, if you have the Truth About Cancer DVD, uh, or if you are a member of IEDFW and you've seen the 
the DVD Cancer the Untold Truth that's streaming on your dashboard under videos, educational videos. If you watch that, there's a slide presentation on my can the cancer DVD. And in that slide presentation, I have a lot of the common characteristics of cancer. And that's really how we approach dealing with cancer. We don't care whether it comes from the pancreas or from the brain or from the liver or from the breast. Or, it doesn't matter to me. I'm looking at the common characteristics of cancer and that's what I zero in on. So now coming back to the original question um, that was posed about uh, Kay and her husband of 41 years who was recently diagnosed with multiple myeloma and it keeps coming back. And so those are the types of questions she was asking. She was concerned about, you know, what, what should we do? And then I believe the question was, um, this cancer goes into remission, but comes back and then the treatments start all over again. Uh, we're unsure whether to do this treatment and once in remission, start getting his immune system healed to kill the cancer. Now, I want you to think about that statement and there's some pretty obvious inherent flaws in that statement itself. But in order to make sure that the, the point is brought home, um, I'm going to divert this component of the discussion to what Angie said originally, which is the autoimmune disease when she asked, is that, is that, uh, is that something that's different among the different types of cancer? So uh, no, it's not. Autoimmune means the immune system itself is fighting itself. Okay, that's an autoimmune disease would be something like scleroderma, um, uh, systemic lupus, uh, those would be autoimmune di diseases, okay? Um, even an allergy can be classified as an autoimmune condition because it's a hyperimmune response where the body sees uh, something in itself that may or may not be uh, what we call a haptin or you know, let's say a foreign body and creates a hyperimmune response to it such as like if somebody gets stung by a bee and it's not a big deal, but another person gets stung by a bee and they have a massive anaphylactic reaction, they can't breathe, et cetera, et cetera, because the body sees that reaction um, as something that's foreign and goes into a hyperimmune response, okay, as opposed to say a hypoimmune response. A hypoimmune response would be a, a, a response that is um, basically dumbed down, okay? So in, actually in cancer, you see a hypoimmune response or in people that are diabetic, you see a hypoimmune response. So you have a hyperimmune and a hypoimmune response, but both of them um, are not what we want. We want a appropriate immune response. And that comes down to one of the three foundations of health that I talked about in the nine steps to keep the doctor away. So the first foundation is the systemic detoxification, you know, to, to basically, um, get all the things out of the body that shouldn't be there. Um, the second one is physiological optimization, optimizing the physiology that of, of, of the best possible state that we can, and then immune modulation, right? So immune modulation, meaning that if we take a hyperimmune response and we make it into a new um, immune response or basically a, a uh, normal immune response, or you take a hypoimmune response and bring it up so that it's a normal immune response. You don't want to have a hyperimmune response. You don't want to have a hypoimmune response. You want to have a normal response. So an autoimmune disease, autoimmune disease is where the body sees itself uh, as it's self-destructive. It sees itself as something that's foreign and starts to fight itself, or it sees something in the body that is introduced into our system and reacts to it in a hyperimmune response. But cancer cells, that's not an autoimmune issue at all. Okay, so I thought I'd just mention that since you brought it up. Um, so you cannot have a cancer present 
unless you have a compromise to your immune system. Your immune system, in other words, has to be damaged if you have cancer. If you don't have an immune system that's been damaged, then you can't have cancer. So if you have cancer, by definition, you have a damaged immune system. There's no way you could have gotten a uh, cancer unless your immune system was damaged. That's the first fundamental component. So when Kay asked this question and she says, uh, this cancer goes into remission, but comes back and then the treatment starts all over again. We are unsure whether to do this treatment and once in remission, start getting his immune system healed to kill the cancer cells. So if he requires the treatment to start over and over again, and then it goes into remission and it comes back again, was his immune system ever properly fixed? Because if the immune system is properly fixed, then you shouldn't have a problem with the cancer, right? The problem is that the cancer comes back because the immune system was never really addressed. It was never really fixed. So either the immune system is, one, damaged to the point that it can't mount a response, or two, it's not recognizing the cancer as foreign, and so it can't respond to it. It can't fight it effectively. So when, and I don't, probably don't need to then go into and explain the relevance of these comments that I've made based upon this question, but you know, just in case somebody is not connecting the dots, if you have a, any type of treatment that you're needing to do on a continuous basis or you need to do on a periodic basis, um, the question you have to ask yourself, is the actual causation of that problem, has it actually been addressed? Has it been effectively identified and negated? Has it been addressed in an appropriate enough fashion? Because my contention would be that if it keeps on coming back and then goes into what we call remission, all remission means that there's no response going on right now. That doesn't mean that you're, you know, it, it's, it's um, working. It just means that there's no response. In fact, I know our treatments are working when the patients start to get sick, when they start having a response to the treatments that we're doing, that tells me the immune system is recognizing the cancer as foreign and it's not fighting. And that fight is what causes the person to feel like a train hit them, you know, uh, whatever the case may be. There's a whole bunch of things that people experience, and that's called a Herxheimer's response. But basically, when the immune system recognizes the cancer as being foreign, it mounts a response, wakes up, and starts doing its thing. Okay? So that's really one of the things that we want. So when a person's getting a treatment and they go into remission, meaning there's nothing going on, that, to me that doesn't mean that there's – um, any effect from the treatment just means that, you know, all quiet in the Western Front type of thing. So if the problem keeps coming back, goes to remission and then comes back and recurs and then goes into remission and come, recurs, my question is, does that seem like that there's any effectiveness going on there or are we just dealing with a placation type scenario that we're just, you know, waiting for something to happen? Does, does that seem like that anything was really done if it keeps coming back. If every year, every other year, it keeps coming back and then goes into remission and then comes, comes back and goes into remission. Does that intuitively, just based upon, forget about intellectual cognitive function, just based on your own emotional uh, intelligence, your intuition, does that make sense? Does, that, does it seem like it's, it's doing anything? And I just want to, you know, if you guys are in agreement with me and, and if you don't believe that, uh, you know, if, feel free to to argue with my point if you don't agree with it. It's always interesting to see what people think. Yeah, so Richard said, no, it doesn't make any sense. It's not healing, Andrew said. It's just time out. Richard said, that's exactly right. 
Okay, so there's a bunch of questions that were asked here. Are some organs more susceptible to cancer than others? Yes, something to do with the lack of antitumor. Of course, we discussed that already. So what makes one cancer cell more aggressive than another? So this, again, comes back down to the response of the individual and what, um, what the system is seeing as foreign. Certain cancers are more aggressive than other cancers, and it's not because the, the cells themselves are more aggressive. It's basically because of the tissue area and where they're, the type of tissue that they, that they originated from or where the proximity of that cancer is that make it more aggressive, and they, they, they grow faster because they're in, like prostate cancer, it's a very slow-growing cancer, but glioblastoma is a very fast-growing cancer. So is it really this cancer that's different, or is it the tissue where it originated from that allows it to be more uh, rapidly um, expandable or able to metastasize because of the type of tissue it's in? And that's actually what it uh, really comes down to. It's actually this common characteristics of cancer, and then what makes one cancer more aggressive than another cancer, like melanoma, pancreatic cancer, or glioblastoma is more aggressive than, say, a, press, uh, say a prostate cancer or something like that. It's actually not because of the cancer cell itself. It's because of the tissue that the cancer cell uh, originated from and, and where it occurred, and that's what makes the difference, okay? Um, physical, chemical, emotional stress is absolutely right. That is a big contributor. Um, question is, if a child has fewer allergies, then they basically have then they basically have an autoimmune condition. That's exactly right. If anybody has an allergy, that is a type of autoimmune condition. That's right. It's considered... Um, a mild autoimmune condition, uh, albeit a mild condition, it's still underneath that category of autoimmune because the body is seeing something in itself as being foreign. And it could be a happen, it could be something foreign, or it could be something that's in your own body that, you know, like people that get spontaneous hives or something like that. Um, it's because they had a contact from, you know, a new short, uh, soap detergent or something, and they were allergic to it or they were hypersensitive to it, so they get the urticarial type of response. So, again, uh, an allergy is a type of an autoimmune condition, right? So the the question, let's see, no, it's not healing. Barbara said, no, I agree. It's just a cycle, not addressing the root cause. Definition of madness is doing the same thing with no change, as Andy said. That's right. Uh, Einstein's definition of, of insanity was doing the same thing and expecting a different response. That's exactly right. So you guys already understand intuitively that doesn't make sense, and yet that is how many of the cancers are dealt with, right? One of the things that really, really um, is aggravating to me is that when you, when you see how medicine deals with people that have cancer, um, they will say, okay, we need to do a CAT scan, we need to do, you know, CAT scan, whatever it is, and then they'll do the chemo, they'll do the radiation, they'll do whatever, and then they will give them this bill of clean health, that, okay, cancer's in now in remission. And then they're told that they need to do a CAT scan every three months, or every two months, or every six months, or whatever it is. Usually it's every three months, and then after a year or so, then you go to you know every six months, and then they basically keep this track where you basically go and get a CAT scan every six months or a PET scan every six months just to see um, what the change is, what, what, what's going to happen. Here's the problem with that. That's kind of like somebody told you that, hey, there's been a um, incident of robberies in your neighborhood. You need to be aware. You need to have a high index of suspicion and be prepared. Now, what makes more sense to you? Um, setting your alarm for 3 o'clock every morning or every other morning or every third morning or whatever and getting up and looking out the door and saying, okay, looking out the window saying, okay, no, there's, no, there's nobody breaking. There's no cancer here. Doing that every third day, does that make sense? Or 
does it make more sense to get a dog or get an alarm system or get something that warns you if there's an intruder? Unfortunately, in modern medicine, our mentality is somebody's just broken into a neighbor's house or there's a high chance, higher likelihood than normal that somebody may break into your property. And how do we now deal with that issue with the higher potential chance of getting cancer or somebody's concerned with cancer? What do we do? We set our alarm and every three months we look out the door to see, is there anything there? Is there anything there? Is there anything there? That's not prevention. That's not being proactive, okay? Do something so that, God forbid, what happens if that, if that cancer doesn't show up at, at that schedule? What if that person's gonna try to break into your house at four in the morning, right after you looked, right? Right after your alarm went off. It, it's, in other words, it's insanity to try to deal with something from a preventive level by setting an alarm and, and checking to see if it's there. You need to do something proactive. So what do we do in proactive when you deal with cancer, okay? You gotta improve your nutrition. You gotta detoxify your body. You gotta eliminate certain things out of your life that, that are contributing to the cancer or the likelihood of getting cancer. And that's a lot of what we talk about in, um, in some of the videos on, on cancer. And I'm gonna be doing more videos about this. And this is actually part and parcel of, of the, the book that I mentioned before that I'm in the process of writing, which actually I haven't written anything in the, for the last three weeks. So I'm getting further behind in that. But anyway, life gets in the way, right? So anyway, the point being, again, is that we want to be proactive and we want to take certain components, certain actions, certain steps to gain control of our situation so that the cancer cannot be a problem. This is a very, very, very big dilemma that people have because they don't know what they should do proactively to prevent cancer, okay? But there are many things that you can do and again, I'm not going to go into those details here. I can't because legally, somebody can construe this as medical advice, but on the IADFW, we will continue some of this line of thought regarding um, this topic, and we'll talk about some of those things that, we can, that can be done from a preventive level. All right. Um, so let me... answer some of these questions. So Richard said, follow the money, big win for the drug companies. So that's actually an interesting comment, Richard. So when you look at the actual statistics, it's about $135 billion right now is what they, I think actually this is, this is, this is data from probably, I don't know if it's 2000 or 2007, I think it's 2000. But at that time it was about $137 billion or $127 billion, something of like, well over 100 billion, it was like 120 some billion dollars that the cost of care, um, you know, as far as the cancer business is concerned, that's that's the cost of, uh, that's that's the industry we're talking about. That does not include all the research um, that is diverted towards cancer, something like from the National Cancer Institute, I think the number is over 5 billion every year. The National Cancer, uh, the National Cancer Institute and the, American Cancer Society. The American Cancer Society, I think, is like three billion. 